Hello and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 73rd episode, our guest is Elizabeth Greenwood. Elizabeth Greenwood is the author of Plain Dead, A Journey Through the World of Death Fraud, a nonfiction book about people who have faked their own deaths. Her writing has appeared in The Believer, Rhapsody, Oh, The Oprah Magazine, Guernica, Vice, and the digital editions of The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Esquire. She teaches creative writing at Columbia University and Eugene Lang College. Learn more at www.lizgreenwood.com and follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Liz Greenwood for you. That's L-I-Z-G-R-E-E-N-W-O-O-D, the number four, and the letter U. And now on to the show. For people that don't know who you are, uh, just go ahead and let people know who you are. I'm Elizabeth Greenwood. I'm the author of Plain Dead, A Journey Through the World of Death Fraud. Yeah, yeah. And uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, kind of the armpit of New England, but a great place to leave and also a great place to return to every now and then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, when you were growing up there, did you always want to be a writer? Is that what your ambitions were from when you were young? Yeah, it's so funny. I did always want to be a writer, but I just had no idea how one could go about being a writer because it seems like such an impossible career. I mean, you know, you make no money and even the odds of just getting something published is so crazy. So it's, it's an ambition I kind of fought for a while because it just didn't seem practical at all. But now when I go back and kind of look at the trajectory of my life, there are some really funny moments that definitely indicate to me the kind of career I would have, particularly being a nonfiction writer. So two things. In the third grade uh, for the science fair, we had to do a science project, and I had just started like losing the rest of my baby teeth, which now seems kind of late to lose your baby teeth. I don't know what that was about. But we lived next door to an orthodontist at the time, and on my way home from school one day, I just went in unaccompanied and told the receptionist that I needed to talk to the orthodontist for my project and when is he available for an interview. Mm. So kind of funny. And then later in the fifth grade, I did a similar thing. We had a class on civics, uh, civics, and, you know, we were all assigned various kind of civic offices to research. And one of them was mayor. I got the office of mayor. So same thing, called the mayor's office and was like, I need to talk to the mayor. I have a really important fifth grade project to do. So I guess that sort of like pestering people uh, in service of nonfiction writing uh, always came early to me. Yeah, well, that's pestering people uh, I've found is a very important skill if that's <laughs> uh, something you're going to pursue. That, that That's something that has to be in your toolbox for sure. Indeed. Um, but uh, the, I was drawn to your book right away as soon as I, I heard about it and uh, yeah, I also was drawn in the book when I started reading it to kind of the reasons you started thinking about this idea of, of faking your own death which is a student loan debt uh, mm-hmm. and that you know I, I know for a lot of people out there that's going to be a big uh, relatable uh, thing in your book there because as you point out in the book uh, thanks to whatever that bill was that they signed that you now cannot uh, discharge that through bankruptcy right uh, that's not not available the only to you. kind of debt you mm-hmm. can't discharge through bankruptcy. Right, right, right. And uh, there's this—I uh, don't know if you've ever heard the Death, Sex, and Money podcast, but yes, they. Oh yeah. It. Oh yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you heard the episode they had about student loan debt, but there was people talking about how they like had to, you know, use their entire inheritance to pay it off. There's people over a hundred thousand uh, dollars, you know, just a quarter million dollars, and they're not—they mm-hmm. don't even know what to do about it. Like all you do is pay the interest, and the principal would never go down so you'd really never yeah. even be chipping away at the mountain of the actual debt right. it would just be whatever's falling down the side so yeah um yeah Absolutely. so yeah anyway i don't know what kind of question that is but i just i i, I definitely uh, related to that part of, yeah. of your story there so yeah so absolutely i started thinking about this idea about what it would take to fake your death based on a conversation I had with a friend years ago. I'd recently gone back to grad school. I already had loans from my undergraduate career. So 
I just took out even more and I was like, fuck, what have I done? I've made such a mess. How am I ever going to repay this? And just very offhandedly and definitely joking, my friend said, oh, or you could fake your own death. I was like, that's a great idea. (laughs) I just thought it was really kind of funny and darkly comic. And so I just started looking into this phenomenon and asking questions about, first of all, you know, what would it take, especially now, the day and age we live in, where everything is so closely monitored. But beyond that, kind of what would it take to really go through with, you know, emotionally and spiritually? Like, what are the questions you have to ask yourself? So, yes, it was from student loan debt that I started looking on how I could take my own debt. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the sad part is, though, now that you've written this book, no one would ever take it seriously <laughs> if you tried oh, to, like, right? disappear. You know what I mean? You'd be suspect yeah. number one on that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I first heard of you on the Criminal Podcast, and um, one of the things I thought was interesting about that episode, and also, of course, your book, um, but it kind of looks at the different angles of it, and you kind of talked mm-hmm. a little bit about that, about what would it take to do it. Um, I, I thought it was it would kind of enlightening to look at it from what would it take to do it? What would it take to find somebody who's trying to do it? What would it help? What what would it do to take, you know, somebody who has a life and turn them into somebody that doesn't, that's just disappeared. Um, So what did you learn from kind of looking at it at the different angles there? Gosh, so much. I mean, so my book looks at death fraud from a lot of different angles. So obviously there's kind of the practical logistical ways of doing it and then talking to people who have faked their deaths for a while. Obviously they're talking to me. They've been caught. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, scalable insight. People who got away with it for 10 plus years in certain cases. And then looking at it from this kind of pop cultural phenomenon, like why do death hoaxes persist? Why do people still want to think Tupac and Elvis or Turing in Cuba? So I wanted to take this like very holistic view to what all of it entails. And I learned a ton um, from the kind of practical, logistical point of view. I think the best insight I got or answering that was talking to insurance fraud investigators who spend their careers tracking down people who have fraudulently tried to collect on a life insurance policy. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a, you know, pretty big motivator for a certain stripe of criminal Mm -hmm. to um, try to fake his or her own death. And basically what I learned from them is that the more kind of theatrical you try to get with staging the accident and submitting various evidence to the company, the more likely you are to get. So, for example... The problem when you fake your own death, right, is that you need um, to still keep this human container of yours. So the problem is trying to kind of, you know, um, submit evidence of a body of a corpse to a company because you can't do that. And without um, a body, typically um, life insurance policies aren't paid out for seven years. Mm-hmm. That's a long time to wait, mm-hmm. especially if you're the type of person who's like, I'm going to fake my own death and get rich. You're not really probably like, super patient. So what a lot of these people will do is stage these elaborate funerals where they will hire kind of like extras to play mourners and they'll videotape that funeral and submit it to the life insurance fraud company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these investigators are highly trained and usually they're investigating policies that are quite expensive. There's a lot for the company to lose. So, you know, they're, they're coming through every single little angle of evidence. So they will look at the, those videos. And in certain cases, they've noticed that it'll be like all, it'll appear to be 40, 50 people at this funeral, but really it's the same four or five people circling through and changing t-shirts <laughs> in some cases. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Yeah. So what I learned from them is kind of the more simple, the more elegant, um, the Fewer bells and whistles is kind of the better. Right. Well, it's kind of like when you're uh, when you're a kid and you're trying to tell a lie and you overplay your hand and you exactly. like overexplain. Uh, you know, it's like, wait a second, why are you why are you saying so much right now? Now I'm suspicious. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, like you were talking about with the fake funerals and stuff, there is whole like cottage industries all around the world uh, to cater to various parts of this, this death hoax uh, thing. Uh, it kind of grew on the gruesome end of it. There is places where you can just buy a body because as you said, uh, you have to take your body. I, I like the way you said in the book, you have to take your body with you. I thought that was funny. Um, but you know, there's places in the world where you can, you know, you got to have a body to make this, you don't have to, but it helps to make it work. And then if you do that, there are places that you can buy a body, correct? There are places. So I had heard these places described as black market morgues. That's the first way I heard it described, basically meaning that um, there, you know, in certain countries, there are places where if you are a kind of derelict person and you die, some people will pull your body off the street and keep it on ice until someone has use for buying that body. So that's one way it works. Those are actually less common, though, than people going into municipal morgues, which in a lot of places are underfunded, understaffed. And, you know, trying to find a body that kind of suits your appearance, matches your appearance, suits your specifications, and just trying to um, obtain an unclaimed body. Mm. So it's still kind of an official um, institution, but you are, you know, obviously using that place for unofficial reasons. So Mm. it's not even black market in that case. It's just, you know, there's probably a lot of inventory and getting a a body off their hands is like, okay, great, go for it. So you're not going to have the onus and burden of proof that you might like somewhere in the United States. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as you pointed out, the insurance companies are very motivated to find out, you know, if this is true or not. So they're going to be coming through every little detail. Um, I, I feel like back in the catch me if you can days, uh, this kind of thing was, was easy. I, I've kind of joked with people before that, you know, I, I don't know how they ever solved crimes back like a hundred years ago. Like, unless they like saw the person do it. I, I just, <laughs> I feel like it's, well, who, who knows <laughs> anybody could have done it, you know, but, right. Uh, but there's so many little things that you don't think about. And you were even talking about how, uh, like, even cash and, like, burner phones, those aren't, that's not even good enough anymore because there's ways yeah. to track that kind of stuff, too. Everything is traceable. Mm. I mean, the idea that you can, you know, still utilize certain technologies, even something as kind of arcane as a burner phone and not have it triangulated, mm-hmm. it's just impossible. Um, you know, even certain software uh, applications where you can kind of ping your IP address all over to obscure your location. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on who's looking for you, that too can be very traceable. And this idea about who is looking for you is really kind of the most important question um, you have to ask, mm-hmm. right? Because if you, like many people who take their deaths, if you have gotten yourself into trouble financially or mm-hmm. legally, where you have absconded with millions of dollars and you've got the SEC and the FBI looking for you, you know, they generally have pretty good technology. Mm-hmm. And they'll be able to bust your, you know, tour application, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. However, if you haven't gotten yourself into a predicament where um, the resources of people who are looking for you exceed your own, then perhaps, you know, you can dabble. But that's also, you know, one of the big takeaways from my research research was just how asking that question and really thinking about who would be tracking you kind of changes everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, now, I kind of one of the surprising things I learned from your book that uh, I, I guess I had just taken for granted was that um, it's not actually a crime just to disappear. Like, it's not technically illegal just to like drop out of your life as long as you don't profit from your death or supposed death, and as long as you don't like present yourself as someone else. Right? I mean, there's no. Right. Right. I'm there. So it's it's kind of tricky. So it's not 
Faking your death, um, so just to, just to be clear, the difference between faking your death and disappearing is that when you fake your death, you usually stage some kind of accident mm. to make it very clear I as see. to what happens to you, right? So faking your death would be something like chartering a fishing boat and, you know, witnesses see you topple off the side. So mm-hmm. what happened? Oh, he drowned. Disappearing is slightly different where it's just more open-ended. It's kind of the, um, the example I always use is like, dad goes out for cigarettes and never comes back. <laughs> the classic. <laughs> we don't know what happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, when you fake your death, it's not technically illegal in the sense that there is no uh, law called faking your own death. So, doing that in and of itself isn't illegal. Mm-hmm. However, so many of the ancillary crimes mm-hmm. that people might commit in order to stay gone are very much illegal. So, for example, using someone else's social security number, mm-hmm. that is identity fraud, right? If you're going to collect life insurance, which, you know, you definitely shouldn't because you'll very much likely get caught, that's insurance fraud. But there is this, you know, kind of theoretically very narrow um, slice of land you could occupy where you made it seem that you were dead and did not commit any of those other crimes. What that would look like, I'm not quite sure. I think it would be something like, you know, living on an island with a suitcase of cash mm-hmm. and never getting even quite like a library card in someone else's name mm-hmm. and living a very simple life. <laughs> Didn't you have a little vignette about somebody in like Germany that did something yeah, similar so this to is that? an incredible case. It's one of my favorite, favorite cases um, from the book. So this is a story of a young woman by the name Petra Petzitska. And this took place in Germany in the early 80s. She was a computer science student around 20 years old. And one day she got on the bus like she did every day, the city bus, to go to her classes and never came back. So her family remained, you know, unsolved for years. Her family reached out to a Crime Stoppers TV show in the area mm-hmm. looking for help to solve this this case of, you know, disappearance. So as the show was, you know, they were researching and looking into things, it it turned out that there was a state of serial killings of young women around the time that Petra had disappeared, and they had found the culprit of those crimes. This was a man named Gunter, and he was imprisoned at the time. So when the show aired, he called in and said, hey, you know that missing girl? Well, I did her too. And he caught to her murder. Mm. Cut to September 2015. German authorities uh, around Dusseldorf get a phone call for a domestic disturbance, some kind of break-in. They go to the apartment, and they are greeted by a woman in her 50s. They ask if she can show ID. She cannot. She says, I'm Mrs. Schneider. I don't have ID. Sorry about that. Lo and behold, this is Petra Petzitska, and she had just been living off the grid, um, cleaning houses, getting paid in cash. She had never taken out another identity or, you know, from what they could tell, committed any kind of fraud or had any nefarious kind of doing while she was considered dead. So the only penalty that she had to pay was registering herself alive (laughs) with German authorities. So it's a pretty extraordinary case. It's almost like, I mean, I've tried to talk to her. She will not talk to anyone. Mm. I would be like, oh my gosh, I would be <laughs> talk to her. But, you know, it seems like it almost happened just kind of perfectly unless she was able to get in touch and conspire with that serial killer guy, which just seems very unlikely. Mm-hmm. It just seems like the pieces really fell into place in a way that you could never plan for, mm-hmm. right? Right. It's very lucky. Yeah, there's a very small, as you said, narrow strip of land that, that you'd have to kind of shimmy through to, to get through without yeah. committing any crimes because yeah like you said That's it's right. I mean just there's so many things you would have to, to do to actually successfully fake your death that would probably actually just be a crime so um, exactly and one of the things that surprised me too was even um, people who have tried to stage say their suicide so make it appear that they 
jumped off a bridge into a reservoir, for mm-hmm. example, and then get away. Um, once they're found, which they, you know, very often are, they are charged um, by the state for the cost of their search and rescue. So if the state or city deployed um, resources, you know, the Coast Guard, police, ambulances, whatever it was, helicopters, you have to pay that back. And, you know, that's can be like up to you know sixty seventy thousand dollars between the cost of those operations. Yeah, I guess it'd be time to fake your death again. I guess I exactly. Know, try, try one more time. Do it right this yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, somebody you wrote about in the book, who's from uh, my neck of wood, uh, neck of the woods here in Indiana, uh, is uh, Marcus Schreckner. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about his case? It's a pretty interesting one. Yeah. So Marcus Schreckner is a famous death fraudster. Um, he was from. In a suburb of Indianapolis, mm-hmm. which was nicknamed Cocktail Cove. I'll never forget that. <laughs> um, so, uh, Shrinker had gotten in some trouble uh, in the mid aughts, I believe. I want to say. I want to say it was like 06. I'd have to double check that. Mm-hmm. Basically, he was a uh, financial advisor and investor, and he had some of his clients invest in a foreign currency that does not exist. Hmm. So the state uh, securities and exchange committee started looking into this. Uh, it was very clear that the jig was up for Mr. Schrenker, so he decided to stage an airplane accident. So he chartered a single uh, propeller plane and flew it over the Gulf of Gulf of Florida, the pan, around the Panhandle, radioed for distress, and then parachuted out to, um, I believe it was Harpersville, Alabama, is where he uh, got kind of caught in this swamp, and he managed to get out, uh, and he went to a storage unit where he had stashed a motorcycle with some cash, got on the motorcycle, lit out to a campground nearby, um, and was rapidly apprehended. And the reason why is because he had told a neighbor his plans. That was kind of the first um, false move. So, you know, when the authorities started sniffing around, the neighbor was like, yeah, I have an email from him saying exactly what he's going to do. And then and I think... The real piece of resistance of that is, um, is this story is that he had also purchased, um, authorities found a road atlas. Um, mm-hmm. with some of the supplies with the storage unit and they noticed that several pages were torn out mm-hmm. ostensibly the pages you know he would be mm-hmm. where he's going so um, they simply went to a gas station nearby bought the same road atlas and followed those missing pages <laughs> yeah <laughs> and they found him pretty soon wow. yeah yeah and then he had the plane that crashed and no one was in it right that's exactly right. I mean, that is, there's there's going to be that. questions if if an empty plane <laughs> crashes. There, you know, there's just going to be like, oh well, you know, case closed. Who knows what happened to that guy? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's amazing what some people will do when they um kind of create these and stage these vehicular accidents. So mm-hmm. there was one story I read about um where a couple staged a car crash mm. like. If you think about this, this is probably one of the trickiest ways you could do it because, you know, you have to get the skids you know, on the road just right. And mm-hmm. It's pretty tricky to stage a car crash. Oh, yeah. But they had thought ahead in the way that Shrinker had not. So they thought, okay, well, we're going to need to have our remains in this car when they come to investigate. So they actually took cow parts, like various parts of the cow carcass, and had it already in the car and just lit it on fire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, now, another thing I thought was interesting, and this is another thing I guess I had just kind of taken for granted that, you know, I, if I were to think about how would you fake your own death, I would think that going on the water and just not coming back would, would be the way to, to do it. But apparently that's the easiest way to signal that you're trying to fake your own death, right? That's the first thing that they're like, well, okay, the body should In wash up by cases. now. Right. That's <laughs> this is, right. Yeah. So we all kind of think, okay, what's the kind of accident you mm-hmm. could really do where you can still keep your body or bodies often aren't recovered and we're all like water and we think that we're just criminal masterminds Mm -hmm. but just as you said 
it's actually a really big red flag to investigators when there's been a water accident and the body doesn't wash up within a few days. In most places, you know, of course, there are, there are spots on the globe where the tidal forces are extreme, but in most cases, bodies do wash up. Mm-hmm. So especially if you have been in some kind of trouble, especially legally or financially, it just raises red flags immediately that this mm-hmm. is a wa- death by water with no body. Yeah, and then uh, the other one that I didn't realize was maybe the better option, you say, was to go on a hike and then don't come back because people disappear doing that all the time. So. Yeah, that was really surprising to me, too. So that little tidbit, and again, it's not a recommendation. No, <laughs> none of what we're saying should be taken as a field guide. I guess we should have had exactly. that caveat to start I always with. have to say that. I always want to make that clear. It's not suggestions. Um, so I found that out from, again, investigators who work a lot of these fraud cases. Um, because, again, when you try to stage a pretty elaborate accident, there's just, you're just really increasing your odds of getting caught because there's so much more that you're, you know, orchestrating that won't add up in a lot of cases. So going with this kind of elegant, open-ended, mysterious exit is much more, um, you know, like, seems real in a lot of cases. People do disappear hiking all the time, and bodies remain unrecovered for a long time, if ever, in a lot of cases. So that was also very surprising to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I keep I keep chuckling to myself about the going out for cigarettes thing because that's like yeah. the, the classic fifties dad way of just, right. just slipping right. out the back door. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, another person you wrote about that I've actually written about uh, before was Tim Dog, uh, which that's a pretty interesting yes. case right there. But I mean, he he had some problems, so people were obviously a little suspicious too. So. <laughs> the Dog case is so fascinating. I know. I spoke to um, one of the women. So do you want to give listeners the thumbnail on it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't. I guess you and I know who this story, but we let's yeah. let's let's <laughs> let them in on it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Tim Dog, and you can still help me fill in the details. Uh-huh. Tim Dog is a '90s rapper. Mm-hmm. He um, had gotten caught for doing a lot of scams, namely to single women, um, getting them to, in some cases, like, quote-unquote, invest money in him. But he was going to put out this, like, box set CD of his great CD set of his greatest hits, which, like, I can't even name one Tim Dog song, so <laughs> I'm not sure what would be in that box set. But, um, so, like, lots of women he targeted were getting uh, money off of credit cards in the form of cash advances, like super high interest rates, tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, So a number of kind of scams like this had caught up with Mr. Tim Dog, and he was, it came to light that he had been, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong on this, reported dead, like, in the form of his obituary Mm -hmm. running in the paper, and also um, a death certificate that there was never any um, body recovered. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, this came to light, um, a journalist at the source covered it, and then this was picked up all over, um, but no one really believed it, again, because of this financial malfeasance he'd been involved in, mm-hmm. and again, this, this lack of a body, it seems very suspicious. Mm-hmm. So, now remind me, I don't think... At this point, he has not been spotted. He has not been seen. Yet. Well, um, I looked into it, and they yeah. said, and NBC News say they confirmed that he did actually die, um, but it was right. disputed. And then there's a death certificate filed in DeKalb County, Georgia. Yes. Um, so that's yeah. that's kind of where it ended up. So, but uh-huh. there, but 
I mean, you're right. The de- definitely the, the events leading up to it caused people to, to definitely go in that in that direction for sure. So yeah, it had, it had all the makings. Yeah, some of the women um, mm-hmm. who had been involved in this scam, and, and they didn't believe that she was dead. Like, right. They thought that this really kind of matched the profile that they yeah. come to know of this guy just really being a shyster. Oh, yeah. He just they sounds really like a complete scumbag. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, I, that's funny you said uh, Tim Dog. I just you, he, it's not one of those names you can say part of. It's it's, it's Mr. Tim Dog all, all it's at once. Tim Dog. Exactly. Yeah. There, there's no other way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, kind of going back to something you brought up before, uh, Michael Jackson's death. Um, you write about yeah. that, and I thought that was just fasc- a fascinating chapter because uh, you talk to people that are you call it, they're believers, right? They think he's still alive. They That's think what they call themselves. Mm-hmm. They're okay. self-anointed believers. Right. Believing that you know, their idol will return one day in this kind of Christ-like return to Earth to show people that, you know, it is possible what he can do. So, yes, they do not believe Michael Jackson died. They uh, are very passionate about um, combing um, all of his lyrics and different, you know, YouTube videos for clues. He communicates to them. Um, so they are really passionate about this quote unquote fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just wonder if there's ever going to be a high profile death that we ever just accept as on its face again. Cause I, I feel like there's just the like reaction now out there that this is fake. Like it's just going to be the way it is. Like there's never going to be a time where we're going to be like, Oh, case closed. Okay. And it's, there's always going to be this, you know, Oh, but, you know, they were spotted in Jamaica or something. <laughs> I know. And I think that's interesting to kind of puzzle through and think about why that is. Why mm-hmm. is it that we don't want to accept these deaths on their faces? Like, what is it about us as humans that really wants to cling to this kind of mythology that things aren't actually as they appear and that it is possible to, you know, really have the upper hand on what seems like the hardest and fastest fact of life, which would be death. No, you could, you could manipulate it. You Mm -hmm. could do something else. I think it's just kind of endlessly fascinating for us to think about. And then especially when you bring in the celebrity aspect of people's faces who are so recognized by, by millions and billions of people that they could kind of hide out and, in plain sight and mm-hmm. get away with it. It's just really fun to think about. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely for sure. Um, and then there's, there's really no way for us to ever know how many people out there have successfully faked their own death. I mean, because it, you wouldn't know it would just be reported as a legitimate death and then we just, you know, move on. Right. That's right. That's why, you know, data around this is so impossible because just as you said, that's the paradox, yeah. right? If you've successfully faked your death, you are considered, dead. Mm-hmm. So it's almost impossible to know how many. You know, my guess is that it's two things. It's that people do it a lot, lot more than you do it, it being trying to take their own death. People try to take their own death a lot more than we would imagine. Just, you know, and the evidence for that is how many people get caught every year. I mean, in the United States alone, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who attempt life insurance fraud. And that's mm-hmm. just, again, life insurance fraud, right? Mm-hmm. You could be faking your death for other reasons you wouldn't know about. And these are people that get caught. So mm-hmm. I do think it's more than we think about. And I, I do think that some people do manage to get away with it. But again, you have to really commit to it like a full-time job. You have to start planning so far in advance. Mm-hmm. And you can't really do a dress rehearsal for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can't test out your getaway plan. Yeah. So it's hard to say how many really. really oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, one thing I thought was in the, in the planning of it, it kind of reminded me in a certain way of, uh, did you ever read that John Ronson book? Uh, so you've been publicly shamed. Oh yes. I love John Ronson. Oh, me too. I'm a huge fan. Um, but uh, in that book, he talks about people that like, uh, 
try to get their reputations back and try to like mm-hmm. erase the thing notorious thing that they're known for and really mm-hmm. the only way it seemed like that would work is that you have to kind of just confuse the algorithm of Google mm-hmm. or whatever by putting all this bland stuff and just overwhelming the salacious stuff with like just vacation photos and like just random you know other stuff that isn't going to like be quite as incriminating so at least it knocks the incriminating thing off the front page of Google um, the connection I made to what you were talking about with uh, kind of planning to fake your own death is that with so many ways to track people where they're going and stuff, really the only way to hide is to create a bunch of false leads, right? I mean, you have to like, you would have to, you know, search for apartments in a city that you don't have any intention of going to months in advance and make it look like you're going there and, you know, trying to throw people red herrings and things like that. So it's almost like you just have to overwhelm the whoever would be looking for you with so many things that they wouldn't know which one's the right one. So that's right, and that's the main one of the main strategies that the person I profile in the book named Frank Ahern uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Ahern is a privacy consultant, mm-hmm. the author of the book How to Disappear. So <laughs> he really helps. He, he doesn't do it anymore, but for ten years, he helps his clients um, obscure their identity both physically and digitally. And the method you're talking about is just overwhelming the channels of just clogging things through, mm-hmm. with, whether it's banal things or, um, you know, like making a kind of proliferation of your identity. So it would be like, you know, when you Google yourself, sometimes another person who's not you will come up. So making lots of kind of different avatars right. and then assigning the bad thing to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one way that he did things, did help people disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, or, sorry, not exactly disappear, but, you know, obscure some portion of their digital identity. Right. Um, but that's right. Another thing he did, too, was what he called misinformation, mm-hmm. which was setting up those false leads. So looking at apartments in Chicago, having a realtor run a credit check on you, so that will come up. Um, when really, you know, you're planning on just renting a room in all cash uh, in North Carolina, mm-hmm. buying a bus or plane ticket to take you to X when really you're going to Y mm-hmm. and making that a bit um, less traceable. So, and that is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, a lot of work and a lot of expense, too. Mm-hmm. So, it's, it's pretty crazy. It is, absolutely. Um, and I also thought it was interesting interesting that it actually is probably easier to disappear if you have less assets. You know, you think, man, if I'm going to disappear and, and fake my own death or whatever, uh, I'm going to need some uh, some stockpiles here. But from what I was reading in your book, you're the it might have been the him that you were talking to but that said this, but, um, you know, if somebody just has like $10,000 in debt and they just want to disappear, that's much easier to get rid of than somebody that, you know, somebody that has like hundreds of thousands of, you know, legal fees or something that they're running away from. It's it's much easier to disappear somebody with less of a footprint. That's exactly right. Um, so if you have a lot of assets, if you have a lot of real estate, mm-hmm. stock portfolio, and all of a sudden you're liquidating all of those assets, that looks really fishy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's very traceable, too. It's really hard to move large amounts of money um, without a trace. You know, even if you're doing it in the Caymans or whatever, it's definitely gets very tricky because that's a really hard trail to obscure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you don't own property, if you don't have, like, massive, you know, debts, where lawyers are going to be hounding you, say, mm-hmm. it is a little bit easier just because in the sense that there's less baggage. Mm-hmm. It's just you and, you know, whatever you're going to be living off of simply and cheaply. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was interesting how you have uh, profiles of these people that attempt this and then also the spouses that kind of are accomplices a lot of times for this. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see how some people will fake their own deaths and then just live in the same town with like a mustache on or something. Like it's like, you know what I mean? Like they don't go that yeah. far <laughs> or they'll be in the den in or something. Cases. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of wild. So I think the case that you're referring uh-huh. to is uh, about the Darwin. Uh-huh. Yes. So this is a really incredible story that came out of the UK. Um, so John and Anne Darwin, 
Darwin. They were just Mr. and Mrs. Boring, like very average, um, not flashy people at all. John was at the time of his disappearance uh, a prison guard, and Anne was a secretary in a uh, doctor's office. So... John had gotten himself into some pretty nasty real estate debt. Nothing crazy, but I think to him it felt like a lot. He had acquired um, a dozen buildings in, over the span of just a few years, and he was renting them out. And the rents would sometimes come in late, and he wouldn't be able to make payments, and he'd get the cash advance on the credit card, and everything just piled up. Mm-hmm. So he was feeling very overwhelmed and realized that he would be worth more dead than alive being able to get out different insurance policies and pensions and being able to sell off these homes that were in debt. So with the help of his wife, Anne, in 2002, he staged a kayaking accident. Mm -hmm. So paddled out to sea, um, had some supplies stashed in the kayak with him. Uh, He swam to shore. Anne came and picked him up later that evening and drove him to a train station where he then traveled to the opposite coast of England, to the west, and he camped out on a beach there for several months, grew very thin and got through this long beard and took on this very elaborate disguise, Mm -hmm. and then came and picked him up and brought him back to their very home. (laughs) They had this massive, um, like, several-family home where they rented out part of it and lived in the other part. So he stayed um, in the rental part under rent, under the guise of renting a room under the name of Carl Fennick. Um, and at night, he would go back to their home and, like, hang out with Anne. And the really crazy part about this is that they had two adult sons who were not in on this plan. They thought their dad was dead. So he would literally be next door mm-hmm. while they were, you know, comforting their mom, who was ostensibly in mourning. The crazier part about this even is that they were able to carry out this scheme for almost eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, they, John was able to get a passport in the name of a person who was born around the same time as him, but died in childhood. He traveled to a dozen different countries on an authentic UK passport again, mm-hmm. and he was never caught. He turned himself in. Um, he, he claims that the plan was always a kind of short-term fix. Uh, he wanted to pay back this debt he had gotten into and then kind of reintegrate into his life, which you can imagine didn't exactly go uh, according to plan. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't. It didn't go quite quite as smoothly there. Not um, as quite as. <laughs> but yeah, as, as you mentioned, he turned himself in. He didn't get caught, so that was that was a pretty unique case. There. He wasn't caught, and what what people always attribute to John, which is pretty crazy, is that um, when you Google him, there's a picture that comes up of he and Anne in a real estate office in Panama City, with a picture with a realtor after they had rented um, a property and they were like signing on the dotted line, and that. A lot of people think that picture is what got him caught, but he'd already turned himself in at that point. And a neighbor or someone curious about the case Googled John and Panama, and that came up. And that was really the smoking gun. Right. I mean, after that, you know, whatever cover stories don't really happen. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, Now, another interesting one, I'm I'm blanking on the name of this person, but it was the one where they uh, Dateline set up the fake website or the website and then tracked the IP addresses. Patrick McDermott, of course. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was uh, they were they were looking like they did an investigation, and what would they set up a fake website to like track people that checked the website? Was that it? Yeah. So this is the case of Patrick McDermott, who was the ex-boyfriend of Olivia Newton-John. He had. Uh, gotten into some trouble legally from some outstanding child support payments, uh, and what he did, which was, again, a pretty big no-no in death-taking, is he had chartered a fishing boat and staged a drowning. Mm-hmm. So, investigators did not believe this. They hired um, an NBC, Dateline NBC hired a team to look into this death, and what they did was they set up a website to the effect of findpatrickmcdermott.com asking for, you know, any tips if people who'd seen him could, you know, post them here to aid in the investigation. 
investigation. Well, Mr. McDermott thought he was going to stay one step ahead of the game, and he would check out the information that was coming in about him. So investigators were just really monitoring the web traffic to the site very closely, and they saw a centralized cluster of these addresses all hailing from a little town outside Puerto Vallarta. So they just followed this trail of breadcrumbs, and there, lo and behold, is Mr. McDermott. He led his investigators right to his hideout by checking this website so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like uh, if he hadn't been so interested in, in checking back at his own publicity or, or, you know, checking back at people checking on him, it's it's like uh-huh. maybe people wouldn't know where you were, dude. So. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, that's yeah, just a fascinating, fascinating subject. But um, what uh, books are you uh, planning on writing next after writing so much about people that faking their own death? Where do you go from there? <laughs> uh, well, I'm working on another nonfiction book for Simon & Schuster. And this is tentatively titled Love Lockdown, and it's about people who seek relationships with prisoners. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm, all, I'm, I'm in already. I'm, I'm up for reading another <laughs> Tons of fun. Tons of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so have you started the research process for that? I or? have. Yeah, okay. I've been researching it for about a year now. Okay, cool. Uh, and are you looking at people that start with a relationship or people that start a relationship when they... I'm looking primarily at people who seek out prisoners, Ah, people who didn't know each other before one was incarcerated, so people who will go on pen pal sites, some of them are most definitely dating sites, um, or sometimes people who meet through like a mutual friend or people who go and volunteer or work in prisons and then find love with inmates. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. I'll definitely, I'll definitely be up for reading that. Um, yeah. So, uh, you're also a creative writing teacher and, um, what writing advice do you give uh, to your students? Oh, gosh. Well, it's kind of banal advice, but I really do think it's true, is that you really just have to read so much. So Mm -hmm. I think reading as much as you can, because when you're reading and you're, you know, really paying attention, you're really teaching yourself how to write. You know, I'm still noticing all the time in my reading, oh, I love the way that author was able to integrate that quote. How could I do something like that? So, you know, you're always kind of looking for moves and little tricks that you can steal. So that's a big one. Mm -hmm. And then I think really just paying, especially if you want to write, well, either fiction or nonfiction, but since I'm a nonfiction person, I'll I'll give it to nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I think just really paying attention to the world around you and really listening to people and, you know, just going out into the world and putting away your phone and just seeing what's there and observing. I mean, it's really incredible. And just from there, being able to take notes and start describing the things you see. So it's not even necessarily a thing where you have to, you know, be sitting down and grinding out 10 pages a day. That's great if you can do it. But I think the kind of um, real, like, presence and integration you can give this world and just paying attention to what you see, that's where the real kind of idea generation starts Mm -hmm. to happen and being able to bring things to life through very vivid, visceral, sensory description. Mm -hmm. um, is a, a great thing to write. It's something you can do every day, right? Oh, yeah. Without huge blocks of time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And that's a great skill to have, too, because, you know, when I read something, I always love when I read a short little description, but it, like, opens up a whole, like, mm-hmm. thing in your mind from that short description. They don't need to say a lot, but you get a lot from that, and I always like to, you know, because there's an economy absolutely. of words from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, and when I go into a situation, if I'm writing a story about something, I'll write down just, like, like 10 things or well, a couple, a list of things that just a surroundings kind of environment just to get those visceral things. And I, I know exactly totally. what you mean just because you want to put people right in the, yeah. I mean, it's easy to skip over those things if you don't think about them, you know what I mean? Cause you assume people see what you see totally. in your mind. Right. So. And also, you know, thinking that you'll remember them later, mm-hmm. like you won't. No, <laughs> you know, it's never really happens. important to get things down <laughs> in the moment, you know, when I'm doing reporting trips and I'm spending like all day with people and just being fully engaged. I'm so tired at the end of it, but I know I have to write 
you know, just those details and moments down and type up my notes while it's fresh because otherwise, you know, sadly for me, it's just gone Mm -hmm. in the morning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, we're getting pretty close to an hour here, and I really appreciate you taking so much time to talk to me. It's been a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, one one thing I always ask people kind of at the end here is what music have you been listening to lately? Oh, such a great question. Mm -hmm. What music have I been listening to? Okay, since it is summer, I've been really pumping like the 90s hip-hop fun party jams. Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's been so fun. It's the stuff from our youth that just like really makes you smile and want to dance. Yep, absolutely. That's pretty much where I keep my Pandora uh, 24-7, so <laughs> um, that's excellent. So uh, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you want to get in there before we go? I don't think so. I think that was great. Yeah, just that the book is out in paperback on August 15th, and thank you all for listening. Yes, and I, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It was just so fascinating uh, to, to get to know the uh, intricate world of uh, pseudoside. That's a great word <laughs> I learned from your book. Um, but uh, yeah, and I look forward to reading your uh, whatever you're working on next and uh, thank you so much for taking the time I really appreciate it my pleasure thanks so much right. for having me have a good day If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. 
You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.